speaks. So if you would, join me in the 27th Psalm. While you're making your way to the 27th Psalm, I want to give you maybe a little bit of a recap of where we've been and maybe a little forecast of how we want to spend the next few weeks in this, uh, in this largest collection of psalms, hymns, and poems that, that the Bible gives us as the language of prayer The last couple of weeks we saw Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. They serve as an introduction to all of the Psalms. And we hope, uh, we hope by God's grace that like the songs of the summer of 2016 for us won't be something we remember necessarily from Drake or Justin Timberlake. Uh, But hopefully the songs of the summer for us may be the language of God's word, the language of God's people that we find throughout the Psalms. And so the first and second psalm tell us about true blessing that comes from God in in a poetic form, namely that blessing first comes from all the things that we delight in, uh, the things that we meditate upon, and and the blessing that we find in God's Word is meditating on and ruminating on God's Word itself and letting the Bible start to shape our thoughts and and our words and our actions. The second chapter tells us that that another kind of blessing comes in taking refuge in God alone, that that we don't find our comfort in other things, that the things of this world offer us comfort, but they do so temporarily in in a way that's deeply unsatisfying. It comes and goes like cotton candy. It feels good and tastes great at at the time, but is utterly unsatisfying. And yet we find that our refuge, our rest, our trust brings joy when we find those things in God alone. And we want to see here now in Psalm chapter 27, since our delight gives us blessing in, or what we delight in gives us blessing, what we find refuge in gives us blessing, but now I would say whatever we find comfort in also gives us blessing. So as we begin to read Psalm 27, I want to begin with a phrase that I want you to end. If you had to fill in the blank and finish this sentence for me, how would it go? If the world were to fall apart, I know I'll be okay because, fill in the blank. If my world were to collapse, fall apart, I know I'll be okay. I'll know, I know I'll get through it. I know I'll make it because, fill in the blank. If everything around me started to cave in, all the things that I care about started to fall apart, I know I'll make it through because, and then fill in the blank. Join me in Psalm 27, we're going to read all of this together, for maybe what I hope will be a taste of something much more deeply satisfying than anything we could ask or imagine. Verse 1, Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. 
I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I want to share with you a song here that gives possibly an answer and possibly a proper and right and fitting into that sentence that though all the things around me should fail, I know I'll make it through because, and I think the psalm here offers an ending. Now, I want to break this down. I want to kind of dissect this. And I want to share with you some of the things in here that I'm deeply convinced of. So if, maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer or follower of Jesus, that, that's, I'm really glad you're here because what we find here, the, the good news of Jesus, the gospel as we call it, of what Jesus has done who He is and what He's finished and accomplished for us is in full form, is in full fruitful form in the New Testament. But when we hear of the good news of God's mercy in the Old Testament, we find it in seed form. So anytime we're in the Old Testament, the, the God of the Gospel, the God of good news is there. He is there. He's clearly visible. But, but the good news of His redemptive love is in seed form. It's it's in its most rudimentary, its most elementary form. It, isn't, it hasn't taken root. It hasn't fully been accomplished and finished as we believe in Jesus. And I want to invite you to see the ways in which all of the prayers that are asked throughout the Psalms are fully and completely answered in Jesus. All of the things that this psalmist is longing for in his heart, all these things that he wants to believe, and he's calling you and I to, in some sense, sing along with him from the depths of our soul, are fully and completely and satisfactorily answered for us in Jesus. They're sufficiently given to us, sufficiently revealed to us, and made manifest for us forever and ever and ever in Jesus Christ. And I think if, if you'll open your eyes to the possibility that this is true, I think you'll find yourself in some strange and miraculous fashion singing this kind of radical and bold, joyful song in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances, just like the author of Psalm 27. Despite the circumstances, to still say that I see I have light, I have salvation, I have strength, I have confidence. Now, I'm convinced of these things, but, but you may not be. And so I want to walk you through some of the things here that we find, knowing that ultimately to, to, to dissect it isn't necessarily the goal, right? So here's, I want to give you a sense of, of direction that I want you to bury these kinds of words into your own heart in whatever way that may be possible. And, and here's, here's how this is. We're going to dissect it and break it apart. But ultimately, like the point of a song isn't to be pulled apart. It's, it's meant to be responded to in some kind of visceral, natural fashion, right? Like, the point of a song is to sing along. 
Or like the, the point of a song is to like dance to it, right? Right, whatever, I don't know what songs do for you. I don't know what poetic and artistic language or, or poetic and artistic music or art do to you, but they're, they're meant to kind of disturb you. They're meant to stir something in you at the deepest level that causes you to respond in a way that almost feels uncontrollable. As if it's so deeply wired into your frame that you can't help but respond. This is the way this plays out for me. And I want you to, even as we dissect it, think about maybe what this is for you, right? So for me, it's like, uh, I don't know, the song Night Ranger, by Night Ranger, uh, Sister Christian, right? There's this point in the song where it's like, do, 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 motoring, right? And, and so like, I, there's something in me, I can't help, like, even as I just gave you a bad impression, I can't help but play imaginary drums, right? I, I, this is, this is, this is what goes... Phil Collins in the in the air tonight. You know this one, right? I can feel it coming. Right? Some of you are like this. It obviously doesn't bother you, okay? But but for me, when that comes on, there, there's the sense in which I don't stop and go. You know, this is the part where the song. You know, we should we should think about the the way that the beat changes and and the methods that. No, no. There's just a part of you that goes like, I got to do the thing that something inside me wants to do. Right? And for me, it's air drums. There's a lot of songs I don't want to even start. But like, I air guitar. Just and, and so here's what I want to imagine. I want you to begin to imagine. What, what's that thing? When, when, when there's something poetic, something artistic. For you, maybe it's a painting. Or maybe it's, it's a poem. Maybe, it's a, maybe there's something going on um, in a song that just makes you, you're a dancer. Like you, can't, like, you can't hold still when that song gets to that part, when that place where you know you've got to start acting like a crazy person. You start looking around going like, I hope no one minds what I'm about to do. You know what I'm talking about? You hope this song comes on in the shower because no one wants to hear you screech, you like screech to this, right? Do you feel this? So I want to like pull this apart. I want us to see some of the magnificent and poetic language that gives us themes throughout the entirety of the Bible. But in the end, we're going to put it back together and I'm going to invite you to let these kinds of words sink so deeply into you that they become resonant inside of you. And then, and then in spite of all that might happen, when, when the words is good news of who God is begins to reverberate, if someone speaks it or prays it or asks it or thinks about it or sings it, something in you can't sit still. Something in you starts to move around. Something in you expresses a resonant joy. So let's pull it apart. And my favorite phrases of the entirety of this psalm is found at the very beginning. And I love it because it's the only time in the entirety of the Old Testament that God is referred to as, quote unquote, my light. Did you catch this? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Thus whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. So of whom should I be afraid? We see this throughout the first six to seven verses. There seems to be a transition between verse six and seven in which the, 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 the psalmist here, the writer, changes the tone. And it's like the first half is, is declarative in some way. And then, and then this last half is a, is a request of God and an imperative command for us. This is important for us because the same good news that shapes what we think and believe about who God is for us in Jesus in the New Testament can be seen here. And the first thing we see is that there's a difference between the indicatives and the imperatives. That is, there is language that is declarative in nature. It speaks of something that is done. It has come to pass. And then there's language of what ought to take place, of how you and I ought to respond. 
This isn't, it, it becomes more and more important the deeper we get into the New Testament, that we put the indicatives and the imperatives in the right place, that we understand what is finished, what has been accomplished, what is paid in full, to use Jesus' literal words, the last few words out of Jesus' mouth on the cross, and that which is not yet done. And we revel in and glory in and find comfort in that which is finished. And then as a result, as a response, we look to that which we ought to do and is yet to be completed. you got to get this in the right spot. If you miss these, you will miss the joy. The way we talk about this in gospel community is the difference between good advice and good news. And the majority of people who would call themselves Christians live in the realm of good advice. This is what you ought to do. And if you ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you are saved? They will refer to something that they have done. And ultimately, their hope is not in, is in the indicative, the, the past tense, the perfect, final, completed work of God for us in Jesus. It's in something that they've done. And time will erode that faith. Time will erode that trust. Whereas others of us, we, we would say that to find our hope and trust in Christ is not in the good advice and what we ought to do, but instead it's in the good news, the, the thing that God has already completed for us. Such that when we look to God and we're like, hey, you, you know, you better, if we're good advice people, you better quit that, right? And then for the next 30 minutes, I spend my time just like drawing out your shame. You be, you people better... Stop doing that thing that you know you've been doing and you better do less of it and do more of the good stuff you know you've been avoiding, right? And this, have you been this? Have you been in this place? And, and you find yourself going, all right, he's right, he's right, I'm going to do better. I'm going to get it this week. This week I'm going to nail it. And then you fail. And it's a hopeless, desperate, and dry desert, isn't it? Until finally you come to God and you go, God, I, I can't do this. And God in his mercy doesn't shun you or condemn you he goes i know that's why i did this for you i know you can't afford this that's why i paid this in full in jesus i know you can't reach this summit i know you can't achieve these kinds of standards that's why i've met them that's why i have carried you out of the depths in jesus and this for us is the good news you gotta get these squared away you gotta get these right because if there isn't good news that we declare and believe and are convinced of, then there is no good advice that makes any difference. And our best attempts will either leave us in a self-righteous, condemning sense of pride in which we go, I'm killing it right now, and all the rest of you better get better, or we're left in the same kind of a prideful stance that ends us in shame. And we go, God, I can't, I can't even look on you right now, God. I can't even look on you because I'm so awful. The indicatives matter, and that's why chapter 27, the 27th Psalm, verse 1 and 2, begin the same way. Before it asks us to have confidence, before the psalm lands on us waiting and being strong and having courage in our hearts, it starts with the confidence, the indicative, finished work of God. The Lord is my light. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. It's done. It's completed. Though you might have a stack of evidence against this in your own life, it's finished. This thing that God is for eternity past to eternity future is true for you in the deepest and most real sense. He is the light. 
He is the stronghold. This teaches us how to pray. This teaches us how to approach God in prayer. You see the difference? If God is up there and out there and waiting till you get your act together, then it's hard to pray, isn't it? Because you, you, you shamefully come to God hoping that maybe you've got good enough things to say or do, but ultimately you leave in despair, don't you? And then you just, this is what you do, you give God the silent treatment. You know what this feels like when people do this to you, don't you? There's a little bit of conflict, and what do they do? How do they resolve it? They just disappear. They go AWOL. They're gone. Don't know why? Don't know what happened. And I would argue that when the indicatives are out of place and when we find ourselves shamed by our own sense of sin, we tend to do the same for God. We just disappear. We stop praying. It's useless. There's no confidence because ultimately our trust is in ourselves. So begin here with me with this good news. The Lord is light. He's the one who saves. The Lord is the stronghold. He's the fortress. He's the place of safety. And then we respond, so why should I have any fear? Is there someone I should be afraid of? If God's for me, I'm confident that God is with me, and I'm convinced that God is on my side, then who can be against me? The second thing that we see, not only is the order of the indicative finished work of God's character and nature that's true eternity, past, and future, such that we respond faithfully and obediently, but the second thing we see here is is a rightful place of theology and experience. That is, truthful statements about who God is and his character and nature, and then the way that we experience reality. The way I would see this is there's a difference between defining things existentially and theologically. And we as a group of people seek to define things theologically first, existentially second. What does this mean? So he begins to talk about his experience in in a way that it's hard for us to relate to. So this this would have been written by David as he was aspiring to be king. He he probably felt the pressures, even, even in his Even in his run up to being king, he felt the pressure and attack of Jonathan, who used to be his friend, who's kind of in a middle rent. He was like in a middle spot between his enemy Saul and himself, and he and he was not necessarily the most popular guy all the time. He made some mistakes, so he laments and he says that there's enemies after me. Did you catch that? There's there's things that are coming against me. There's there's people that are after me, and and yet it seems to say that despite his adversaries evildoers and then it says i love the evildoers that are assailing him to eat up his flesh get this picture of the this is almost like only a a servant shepherd can speak right only a shepherd who used to take care of sheep from from wolves and and lions knows what that feels like when your enemy wants to kill you to the point he wants to eat you you get this language and yet despite his experience he clings to something that's deeply true He clings to something that existentially isn't necessarily believable, but theologically, that is eternally rooted in the nature and character of God, has powerful transformative effects on our life today. Let me break this down a little more. So we want to define things biblically and theologically. That we want the the truth of God's nature and character to shine out over such in such to such a degree that that our existence and our experience of reality comes into line with it. But most of us are tempted to define things existentially. Now you'll see this like the crotchety old man, right? This is what, this is, we've never done it that way before, right? Because in his own head, he cannot see things outside of his own own existence, his own experience of reality, 
right? So this is what's happening. And it, like something just disconnects. I, I don't even know what to do with that. I can't even comprehend that. And this is what, in, in full-grown form, this is what it looks like for you and me. We'll define things just by our own experience. Well, that's the way it's always been. And we'll even defend ourselves based on this, which, mind you, doesn't hold up in a court of law, right? Existential arguments don't work in court, right? Well, my father was a serial killer. My grandfather was a serial killer. My great-grandfather, he was a serial killer too. That's all I've known. That's just the way I was raised. Heard this one? It doesn't hold up in a court of law because existential arguments are rooted in our own experience that shifts from time to time. My wife and I saw this um, pa- just like painfully and powerfully about a year ago. We don't travel a lot, and so some of you travel more. Uh, maybe you, I mean, we, we travel enough to where like, we don't hold up the line at the TSA security checkpoints. God help you if you do that. We, we don't do that. But, <laughs> but we don't travel enough to really be, like, it's not common. And so the, pe- the way that people act, um, getting in and out of the airplane and the airport, still shocks us, Right? Uh, for those of you who travel all the time, it doesn't bother you. You're like, this is people, who cares, right? But, but I still get shocked by it. Like the childishness and immaturity that, that comes out of people when they're squeezed and flying from one place to the next blows my mind, right? We're at our worst. And I saw this. There was a woman who was in line in front of us. We, we've, already, we've already gotten through the checkpoint, and we're standing in line. We're about to come up there, and, and uh, they're the kind of surveying the the, the, the line of people, and, you know, they give that announcement, like, if your bag's too big, you need to come check it, because you're going to make everybody miserable, because it won't fit, right? Have you heard this, this argument? Okay, so they kind of say, don't do this, so you need to be nice, and this woman right in front of us, she has a rolling luggage, you know, the, the one that you can valet or put in a big bin, uh, and then she has this other big bag. It's like, uh, you know, like, like, think grandma purse, right? It's actually like a duffel bag, but it's decorative, so you get to call it a purse, you know what I'm talking about? And then in the other shoulder, she had like a, a purse purse, right? But it was still big, and, and they're all packed full. And the nice people uh, that worked for the airline came, two of them came up to her, and, she said, and they said, ma'am, uh, you're only allowed one bag to, to either valet or put in the bin, and then one smaller bag to put underneath the seat. And she just, just gave them the, the, I don't know what that noise that is, that, right, comes deep from your soul, deep in your gut of anger, like, and, and, and they said, ma'am, we're going to have to check one of those bags. You can't have three bags. And this is what she responded. Well, no one's ever stopped me before. Like, right, and, and both, of these, both of these people, because this is an existential argument, both the people being polite, because they probably have to deal with people like this all day, uh, they just, they went, they went blank, and they were like, okay. And they just walked off. She had defined reality existentially, right? She did, she, her eyes weren't open to the rules, to the policies, to what was fair, to what was just to the people around her. In that moment, she just defined everything by, this is the way I know things to be. Are you telling me the way that I know things to be is wrong? Ha! No one's ever stopped me before. Now, my wife and I, you'll hear us joke about this all the time. Like, if we do something wrong, if we do something bad, and if you just hear me go, no one's ever stopped me before, Right? It's, it's our joke, a callback joke to this moment where this woman shocked the whole line by saying, the rules don't apply to me because I define things existentially. I define things based on my own reality. Notice that the psalmist pushes right back against this. Did you catch it? His experience, his current reality was one of victimhood. Did you catch it? He's under attack. And I don't mean like this kind of false victimhood that we tend to live under. 
right? I mean like really, people wanted to kill him. He had adversaries that were plotting against his life. Like this is, this is the part of the psalm that's hard for us to even relate, right? I don't, I don't know how many people will put out hits on you. It, it rarely happens, okay? I rarely have people who want to kill me. And yet it's hard, so it makes it hard to relate. And yet here, this man is under the threat of death. But how does he define his reality? How does he see the world? Does he see it through the lens of his own experience? No. He still sees it through the lens of God's character. He defines things theologically rather than existentially. This is especially important on the other side of this. Many of you have a deep experience of the Spirit of God in your own life. And God has done amazing things for you. And so you, if I asked you, like, how do you know God? How have you come to know God? You would tell me about an emotional and life-changing experience. But beware. You're probably living one emotional high to the next. Your life is like a grown-up church camp that you're hoping will give you enough excitement to get you to the next mountaintop. That won't work. And if I asked you, this is where I would push you. If, you're, if you tend to define reality this way, if you're living from one experience to the next, winning, living and defining yourself by one high or one low to the next, I would argue, let's, let's stir up our own brain, let's stir up our own intellect for the truth, the, the theological, eternally true nature, uh, nature and character of God that we see revealed to us in Scripture. Root yourself in this. And so if I, like, hey, how do you know God is good? You would say, well, a long time ago I had this crazy uh, emotional experience of God. That's awesome. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to match that experience with the truth of God's character so that when it hits the fan again, when you are assailed, when you are attacked, you won't find yourself hoping that things get better and you feel better. You'll find yourself aligning your emotions and your sense of experience with the truth of God's nature. But then there's the other side. Some of you theology nerds, some of you Bible nerds in the room, right? you know who you are, okay? So here's what I would argue for you. You're strong at defining things theologically, but if I asked you when was the last time that your heart was stirred in you by the truth of God's nature, you couldn't answer And so to the same extent that I would say to the person who defines things by their own existence and experience, I would say, no, no, ground your identity and trust and hope in the truth of God that you know to be true, even though right now you don't feel like it's true. I'll say to you over here, get your feelings in line with the glorious good news of God. Like, you you should hear yourself when you find yourself saying, oh yes, I believe God saved me, with a blank and morose face. No one's convinced. And you're wondering, well, I, I know all the answers that the Bible has, and I, and I answer all the questions that my friends gives me about the Bible and who Jesus is, but they just don't believe me. That's because you're unconvincing. No one is stirred by that. Did you catch the, the ways in which our experience is meant to be drawn into our faith? One thing that I've asked of the Lord. There's one thing that I want. One thing that I seek after in verse 4. What? That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So for those of you that could answer all the right questions about the character and nature, the eternal majesty of God that the scripture reveals, but you're cold and bitter in your own heart, I want you to to draw into this verse 4. I want you to pray this prayer. Repeat this. Let this resonate deeply inside of you until you really believe that God is so majestic, that he is so good, that his redemptive power is so amazing that you just want to live in it for the rest of your life. 
I just want to hang out with you, God. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and I want to inquire in his presence. The second thing we're taught to pray, after we learn to see in the indicatives and truth of God that shapes our imperatives, how we respond, the things that are done versus the things that we ought to do, the second thing we see is a right understanding of the theological and eternal truths of God and then our sense and experience of reality. This is what's true. This is what's right. And when you find yourself passionate about something or even resistant to some sort of change, ask yourself why that is. Is it because of your own experience alone? Is it because it robs you of a sense of comfort or routine? Be careful. This is dangerous. You are defining things existentially. You're defining things based on your own experience. And it might be distracting you from beholding and gazing upon the beauty of God. But then how does he pray? Did you catch the structure? Not only that he gets the indicatives, not only that he gets the theological truths, but there's something else that he brings to the table. I see it in verse 10. When the, when the gears shift in verse 7, there's a, there's a new tone, and it says that now I want to have something that God has given me. I want to be blessed with something that's powerful. I want to take all of this in. I don't want God to hide from me, but I want to see his face and be, be right face to face with him, to look him in the eye and behold him. That's why this is what we experience on a regular basis that I, I kind of push back for us, all of us in this room, I don't think any of us is really innocent, is that like social media is not real. Technology is not real. It's a tool to connecting people, but it's not really connecting people. And we happen to live in a day and age in which we will sacrifice and substitute face-to-face intimate interactions by simply hiding cowardly behind our keyboards. You seen this? And that's why, even though you may be Facebook friends with someone, even though you've texted them, when you see them face to face, your experience of them is radically different, isn't it? And we say things like, it's good to finally meet you, right? It's good to meet you face to face. Because typically what can be covered in about 300 text messages can be covered in one email. But what can be covered in about, one e- about 300 emails can be covered in one co- phone conversation. And what can be covered in about three hours of phone conversations can be covered in a few minutes of face-to-face interaction. Where do I get this? Where do I get this? Where, where do I get this from? Because the intimacy that God reveals to the psalmist here and the intimacy that the psalmist responds that he wants is that he would be face-to-face with God. Face-to-face to say, God, it's so glad to finally meet you. You're so much better in person. And all the nuances and all the little things that were confusing to me, now I see face to face. He says, cast me not off, forsake me not. Because to know someone face to face does something that's radical in verse 10. It says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. See, the last thing I think we see here is a picture of loyalty, a picture of trust and comfort that is so radical it's hard for us to understand. 
Now, I joke about this on a regular basis, but I mean to joke about it in terms of parable form to point to the reality that exists, right? Disney kills parents, okay? Right? Why? Why? Why did Simba's dad have to die? I don't know, right? But, but there's this sense in which Disney has jumped into this over the last few decades, and they kill parents, and this is why. There is a sense of loneliness and desperation that cannot be pictured or defined, especially for a child. It cannot be communicated to a child any better than the possibility of their parents being gone. And some of you know this more deeply and powerfully than anyone else. I encourage you, if you want to, you can kind of Google attachment theory or attachment patterns. There are different ways in which psychological theory starts to unpack and and tries to understand our relationship to our most consistent and primary caregivers. This usually relates to parents, but it could because of the way this tends to play out on us, it, it could relate to anyone. You've got first, the, probably the, the worst or the most damaging is a disorganized attachment pattern. This is kind of a sense in which like, this is pathological to where you have been so abused or disconnected from the people, you're abused by or disconnected from the people that are meant to care for you, that now you do not know how to relate to people. This is the root of like sociopaths. This is how they kind of, they dis, people would display a disorganized or disoriented behavior in all relationships. And it usually is rooted in something that happened that was deeply traumatic and disorienting. But then there's a resistant or an ambivalent or an avoidant attachment pattern. This is usually because a child maybe was at some point like disconnected from their parents in some powerful way. And their response is typically an anger or passivity. They tend to be preoccupied with the location of power, or in this case, maybe the parent. And they don't desire to explore or be curious or or be liberated in their thinking because at some point, their learning led them to believe that nothing is sacred, nothing is sturdy, nothing is consistent. Another attachment pattern that's broken is avoidance. It says the child in an avoidant attachment pattern this is from a psychological journey, journal. The, the child often fails to even cry when separated from the parent and avoid and ignores the parent when reunited. You know this person as an adult, right? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I, no emotion. Disconnected from this. I'm not, anger or, I'm not angry or, or, or expo- explosive in my expression. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to hold it in. No. But then the very most important and what is meant to be ideally the healthy attachment pattern is a secure attachment pattern pattern where a child has a deep-rooted sense of security from their caregivers. Now this plays out in all sorts of different combinations and all sorts of different personality types and all sorts of relational circumstances. And I, and I think you can probably begin to see them. The kinds of people who tend to just lash out because that's their way of attaching and relating to people. And the way they relate to people is by imposing themselves on them. And then other people that tend to relate to people by avoiding them and retracting. And instead of connecting with them and finding relationship in any deeper, meaningful way, they, they withdraw and hide. And if there was ever a person who would fit one of these three broken attachment patterns, it would have to be whoever wrote this psalm specifically verse 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me. 
just let those words kind of wash over you. For some of you, that is a powerful truth that hurts more than we can even begin to imagine. For some of you in this room, there's a sense of brokenness with your own parents, with your own relationships to people that you thought were trustworthy, that should have been there to care for you, and that brokenness now scars you and has ruined you for relating to other people. But what would it look like for you to begin to realize that in spite of the brokenness that exists in us, with the people who were meant ultimately to model God's loving kindness and care, even though they failed us, we still find hope, trust, security in the Lord. Think how radical it would be for a person to say this. Look, my father and my mother, they've forsaken me. They've forgotten me and rejected me. But the Lord will take me in. Think about if the most powerful and poignant attachment pattern that you and I had was actually found in the security of God's loving kindness. Fill in the blank with anyone else. My friend. My spouse. Fill in the blank. My brother, my sister. They've forsaken me. They've hurt me. They've turned on me. They have not lived up to what I expected. But what would it look like for you to have your trust and attachment in the Lord so secure, to know that the price has been paid for you by Jesus Christ so sufficiently, so completely, that in spite of being rejected, broken, abused, and betrayed, you would still look to the Lord and find yourself hopeful? Does that seem impossible? Because the Bible tells us that this gift to receive, that God gives us in faith, is a gift by His grace alone. And if you find yourself saying, well, I have more doubt than faith. I don't have much faith. I have a lot of doubt. I want to tell you the good news about this God who takes you in. Jesus tells us that even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, the mustard seed-sized faith that maybe you've stumbled into this room with is enough to experience the joy and security that God gives us when He takes us in. I don't have a lot of faith. I have more doubt. That's okay. Weak faith in a strong God is strong enough to save. God will save, and He will be your light and salvation. So here's our response. Here are the things I think we do. Here are the things that I think we're supposed to, to call out to God as we learn how to pray, as we learn how to think about who we are because of God, as we learn to think about who God has called us to be. Here's three, maybe hopefully productive and pragmatic ways to respond to the ways in which we ought to pray given Psalm 27. So we are called to revel in, to glory in, to enjoy in God and express our triumphant faith in Him. You have to think that even in the midst of his circumstances, this person probably didn't really believe what he was saying. My attackers are waiting for me, and yet here I am. And yet we're called to revel in glory in God and triumphantly declare faith in Him. We're also called to believe that God is ultimately light. And He is our strength. He's our stronghold by whom and in whom we live. Did you catch the final phrase of the chapter? It says, wait for the Lord. It says, be strong and let your heart have or take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now this whole be strong and take courage, in our own society, this is a very inward-focused kind of a command, isn't it? It's like toughen up. Well, where do I get that toughness? It's like you look, look inside yourself, 
find the strength in yourself, right? Suck it in, stand up tall, make it happen. Get through this. Grin, bear it. Grit your teeth. But where did this psalm lead us to find that courage and that strength? Did you catch it? Was it in him? Was it in his circumstances? Was it in his ability to fight off the enemies? Apparently he doesn't say any of those things, but instead his strength is found in the fact that God is light. God is salvation. He's a stronghold. Because of him, I will have confidence, no fear. I will have joy in his presence. I will gaze upon his beauty. He will hide me. He will conceal me. He will cover me from the enemy. He will lift me up above my enemies. He'll lift up my head. And I love that part of verse 6. I don't know if you caught it. I will sing and make melody. So be strong. Not because you are strong, but because God is strong. In fact, when you are weak, His strength is made most visible in us. And then lastly, since we know that God is our light, since we know that God is our salvation, let us be secure in Him. Let our minds be fixed upon Him. And let us expectantly wait for His deliverance in all circumstances. How are these ultimately fulfilled for us? What I want you to meditate on for the rest of this week, I I just want you to think, how are the ways in which these prayers are declared to God true for us in Jesus? Can you imagine Jesus saying these? My enemy is out to get me. They're encamped against me. They're assailing me. They want to destroy me. They want to mock me. And yet, what do we celebrate? In spite of the darkness of Good Friday, and in spite of the loneliness and emptiness of that Sabbath, we celebrate the good news that this psalm is fulfilled and completed for us in Jesus. And he that waits upon the Lord renews his strength. Who else could say that but Jesus walking out of the tomb? I want to challenge you. Don't tell God that he can't save you. Don't tell God that you're beyond saving, that you're beyond hope, that your circumstances are too bleak. Because what you're doing is you're belittling the cross of Jesus. You're belittling the experience of Jesus that fulfills all of the promises of Psalm 27. Now, what would it look like for us to hum along to the truth of these words? Let's put it back together, right? We've pulled it apart. Let's put it back together. What would it look like for these kinds of words to be so deeply rooted in us and be repeated inside of our own souls so much that we begin to believe them? Here's what this looks like. I want to encourage you. I want to leave you with something. Maybe allow you to smile and think about how this can deeply be rooted inside of your soul. So in the 90s, there was uh, a, a few things, and this is, this is how this is, it's haunted me, frankly. Um, in the 90s, there was a band called Ace of Bass. Uh, I think they were like Swedish or Danish or I don't remember. Um, interesting, all of the cliches about 90s bands, that's Ace of Bass. And they came out with a sign. It was awesome. It was called The Sign. Great song, great song, The Sign. And, and in those days, we, we did clever things, um, and, and, and we're, we're spoiled now because we didn't, we, maybe if you didn't buy it on, the, on like the, the, the tape itself, because if you bought it, the tape, you usually couldn't record because they had come out with some neat technology. If you were waiting by the radio, you could record on a tape a bad version of that song. 
And I remember I took a 90-minute tape, two of them, 45 minutes on each side, as long as it could come. And I took and I, I recorded this song, missing the first few seconds of it because I wasn't ready on the radio just exactly. And I recorded that song over into another tape. And then I recorded that song back over into the tape so there were two in a row. Okay? And then I recorded those two back onto the other song, to, uh, other tape, so there were three in a row. And then I took those three and I added it back to the other tape. Right? Did you, did you see where I was going? To the point, this, I mean, if you think about the time that I invested into this, it's just silly. To, so that I would have a tape that was 90 minutes long, 45 on each side, filled with this one song. It's an annoying song now. But here's what's funny. If in any given moment, like any given moment in my life, I mean, as high or low as I might be, you could come up to me and you'd go, give me ace of base to sign. At any given moment in my life, it's so deeply rooted in me, I could just start spouting it out. I can start singing that silly song. I encourage you to Google it, Ace of Base to Sign. You'll, you'll thank me. You'll, you're welcome. <laughs> and at any given moment in my life, I can go to that song. I can go to it. It's the most shallow, silly, ridiculous lyrics the 90s had to offer with a really catchy tune. What would it look like if we were a group of people? What would it look like if given any circumstance, whether the enemies were assailing us, whether the things that mean to destroy us are camped out around us, what would it look like for us to, under any circumstance, be able to access the powerful truth of this psalm? What if despite insults, what if despite insecurity in relationship, what if despite the troubles and, and the uncertainty of the future and your job and, and your finances? What if in spite of all of these circumstances, in any given moment, we could, we could simply hum in our own heads the truth of God? Oh yeah, the enemy's out there. I will have no fear. Because he's going to hide me in the shelter. And in the same cheesy way, we can hum along to a song. What if we deeply rooted this psalm and this kind of psalm in our soul so that even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, we would say, I have confidence, for he will hide me in his shelter, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And he, despite what is around me, will lift me high upon the rock. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that the truth of this psalm, uh, the deep and eternal truth of this psalm, is, is for us completely and finally answered for us and fulfilled for us in Jesus. This psalm isn't just about the past and your past faithfulness, but this psalm is about the future and the faithfulness you mean to demonstrate for us forever and ever. God, if there's someone in this room right now, maybe the thought that God will save and that you will redeem, the thought that you will restore that which is broken, the thought that you will forgive the sin that's deeply hiding within us, those things seem difficult to believe. And so for those in this room that find more doubt than faith in this, would you begin to stir them with the indicative nature of your character? You are light. You are salvation. And to even begin to open our eyes to the possibility of that truth is to experience a new transformed reality. For those of us in this room, the truth is, maybe for us, we, we, just, we have other songs on repeat. Uh, we have songs of bitterness and confusion 
in our own minds, the lyrics that seem to resonate most deeply with us are lyrics of anger, lyrics of frustration. We looked at the circumstances around us and it, it becomes almost impossible to think about hope. Uh, we see the, the conflict and brokenness in the world. We see the sinfulness of humanity that brings violence, that brings chaos, it brings anger and murder and justice. And believing that you are good in spite of it is the most difficult thing possible. Would you help us to fix our eyes upon your truth? Would you help to turn our attention away from that which is broken due to sin in the world to see that which is reconciled and redeemed by the blood of Jesus? Would you help us to turn our attention and focus away from that which means to assail us and destroy us and see the victorious Lamb of God risen for our sake? Let us find joy in this such that under any circumstance we could hum along the words of good news. Let us believe this, be transformed by it. Let us be convinced of this in a radical and powerful way. In Jesus' name.